Hi, I'm Benjamin Catley Richardson, and I am your host for this new podcast called We're Not Selling Shoes Here. And the reason behind that uh, name will, will come clear pretty soon, but ultimately I'm trying to reach out and help small charities to win awareness and to get a greater reach of their audience. And today I'm speaking to Tim Evans, who is formerly of Worth Unlimited, a charity that was focused on raising hope with marginalised young people. And um, Tim, you were there for 20 years, is that right? Uh, 19, yeah. 19, 19 years. years. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. yeah, close enough. It'll do. It'll, It'll do. do. So I'm sure in all of that time, you must have found yourself, uh, obviously, at the, the lows and the highs. But ultimately, what I want to kick off with is, why did you spend 20 years doing that job and not just selling shoes? So like the story of why goes back a little bit, like a little bit further. So uh, I, when I went to university, I was one of those, I've been one of those teenagers who've been a bit lost, a bit like, what is my place in the world? Does anything make sense? Like, what what is this life thing like about? That makes me sound really intense. It wasn't quite like that, but... Um, I think we're all intense at that age, though. Yeah, exactly, exactly, (laughs) exactly. But when I went to university, like I just, I, I I did a job. This is why I don't sell shoes, right? Before, and this is no offense to people who sell shoes, by the way. (laughs) Before I went to university, like I, I didn't get one of the A level grades that I needed, so I had to take a year out, and I worked for a local authority for a year to train me public relations, which I know will like be a bit of a shock here because uh, of what you do um, and I absolutely hated it like absolutely hated it and I, I came away from that year because then I went to university after that and I vowed to myself that I was not going to work for however long 40 odd years of my life eight ten hours a day doing something that just felt like it was meaningless and was just a bit of a treadmill so I went to university with a mindset of I want to discover something about what is meaning in life and you know I discovered faith when I was there but also purpose like what is the reason that I'm on the planet is there something that I'm drawn to and I started in my second year volunteering with student community action and the volunteering project I did was two one was something called kids away which is taking like kids from homes where they didn't get to go on holiday away for weekends and a project that was about working with teenagers going up into the council estates that surrounded the place that I went to university, which was Swansea, and trying to engage with those teenagers. And the thing that struck me was that even though I wasn't at a very, you know, it wasn't a particularly prestigious university, that these young people who lived no more than two or three miles away, some of them from me, their life chances and my life chances were completely different because of the circumstances in which they had been born, which wasn't their fault but was already shaping their lives hugely and I went do you know what like I want to do something about that that really offends me I was a bit of a lonely teenager but my goodness me these kids have got it tough and so I want to do something about that and so take the combination of 
I don't want to do a job that's meaningless or feels meaningless. And I want to do something that I care about and that I'm passionate about and that makes a bit of a difference in the world. Then those two things came together. So I started in youth work way back then. So that was 1991, I think I would have started doing that. Worked for a couple of other voluntary sector organisations then came to earth in 2002. I think it's interesting. I kind of want to start with that thing you said about um, not offending the people who sell shoes. <laughs> because obviously uh, coming up with the name for the podcast, and this is actually, um, as I mentioned to you before we started, this is actually something that somebody said to me while I was interviewing them last year, when I was doing some market research in, into charities. And it was about that um, approach that um, many business support agencies or marketing agencies or anything have sometimes have when they come to charities. And when it's that kind of um, charities, almost the dot on the end or the sort of side, you know, not all of them are like that, but that essentially you can't treat a charity just like every other business. Because even though, you know, you might be um, for not profit, but you're not for loss. You know, you're not about making loss. So there's still business elements that are, are involved in it. But it's it's the sort of side of, of looking at it and saying you're not selling shoes. And even the kind of companies that sell shoes almost with a purpose or a message. And that's a big kind of conversation in retailing and in branding at the moment. But I thought it was interesting because we always pull back, don't we? I say we, I mean, you know, people seem to always pull back from saying, um, no offence to this group, no offence to that group. And yet, at the same time, it's really difficult, isn't it, to be true to what we want to do and not be offensive to other people or not kind of stand on other people's feet. And the fact that other people sell shoes is just a fact. But I can't and you can't. And so that's just the way things are. And I guess thinking about your first job was basically your experience of selling shoes, wasn't it? That going in and doing yeah. something. Yeah. And, and what was the what was the kind of day-to-day -day experience of it that you didn't enjoy? I didn't like the monotony. So there's something about personality in all of this, right? So there was something about the monotony of it, going to the same office, doing the same things. Um, so that you know that I didn't like it I didn't enjoy so it didn't it didn't excite me it didn't stimulate me it didn't make me think wow it didn't make me think oh, I'm learning loads here like all of that you know I mean? that kind of stuff but I think like ultimately is I couldn't I ultimately couldn't see the point I couldn't see the why so I'm a big fan of somebody called Simon Sinek who talks about that what most people talk about is when they talk about businesses or organisations and stuff is they talk about who they are and what they do. And, you know, that's fine. You know, I, I'm Tim and I work in Clarks and I sell shoes, you know, that kind of thing. But what he talks about is the what's your why? Like, what is the what is that? And he applies it in organisational terms. Like, why, is, why does your company exist? What's the reason behind it? And all kinds of profit and non-profit and public sector institutions can work with whys and that's you know that's really good but I think you can also apply it personally like what's your why I love the quote of find your find your passion and apply it to the world's deepest needs you know find the thing that you care about find the thing you're good at find the thing that gets you know I wanted something that you know that job that you're talking about 
I used to get up on Monday morning and I couldn't wait for Friday evening. Like I couldn't wait for it to finish. It wasn't terrible, but I couldn't wait for it to finish. And I was just like, that is no way to live my life. And I definitely was then going, because one of the things about working for a charity is you don't get particularly well paid, is I I was very quick onto that. I will absolutely trade off a, in inverted commas, good lifestyle for feeling that my life is worthwhile. If that's a trade I need to make, I will absolutely make that trade because I know earning a good wage doing something I really don't get, I'm not into and don't care about, that will kill me as a person, however much money I earn. I'll be a miserable person to be around, a miserable husband, a miserable dad, Jarmaine, etc. I will be better off trying to make a living trying to do something that makes a bit of a difference in the world. That's a completely different thing. So even from that age, I think I was like, my head was like that. I think as well, um, it's it's still a two-way thing for me um, when you talk about businesses and obviously purpose. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people get down a rabbit hole of what purpose actually means. And like Starbucks saving the world one cup at a time is nonsense, you know, absolute rubbish. But if Starbucks had the purpose of making every single cup of coffee you drank feel like the cup of coffee that you wanted to have or the cup of coffee you hoped to have, you know, that's a decent purpose. It's, it's a yeah. retail purpose. It's a great purpose. And actually, why shouldn't that be their purpose? Because then they'd get great coffee, which is what they're all about, not saving the world. Um, but I also think when you think about your role, that if you get a job selling shoes and you hate it and you just do it, and you hate it and you do it and you hate it and you do it, you're actually doing somebody who would love doing it out of a job. And I kind of look at it like that. Like, I think this is where I resolve it, is that um, it's not, it shouldn't be offensive, even though it's sort of maybe standing on people's toes, but to say that I personally, I could never just sell shoes for a living. I couldn't just do that kind of job. And I've never been able to do that job in my history, much like you're saying. That's not to say that people who do those jobs can't be fulfilled and can't actually make a difference to somebody's life or even just to their own life. But that's the way it should be. If I'm not enjoying and making something happy out of that role, I shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And I wonder what it was when you joined Worth. So obviously you had that kind of, um, yeah. that stepping stone sort of process between being a student and then working uh, there, but you stayed there for 20 years. So something about being there must have captured your joy and must have given you something yeah. that you didn't get anywhere else. And what was that? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, absolutely. So I think um, there were a couple of things, I think. One is I'm quite a uh, entrepreneurial kind of person. And so I loved, you know, it worth was um, quite small and new and fragile, like when I took it over. So I, I, if I'm honest, I, I loved the challenge like of that. Could I be part of turning that into something so that was definitely part of it because I think the danger with these conversations is that what you can get into is his hero mentality do you know what I mean here's Tim this hero who did all this amazing stuff and he he didn't sell shoes he did all this like and I think there are some charity leaders who can get into that like you know that thinking and faith leaders and all that kind of stuff but actually that's really a messianic complex is very unhelpful like I think so I think it's better to own up and go there were, it wasn't all altruistic in that sense. Do you know what I mean? There was something that was in it for me. Like I took, I think that's I wanted totally to right. see what I could do. I Absolutely. think that's the perfect thing. It's almost what I kind of call a bit po-faced, maybe a bit tongue in cheek, but like positive selfishness. 
Like yeah. my selfishness, actually me acting in my own interest seems to sometimes make other people happy. And is, is that a bad thing? But yeah, so what was it then? You, you, you found a challenge, you, 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 know, you came into Worth and, and what was it um, about the day-to-day? That you, you so, I, like, so I think so. The second thing I would say probably is, um, like, like who it was like reflected a lot of who I am. So it was faith based, but not proselytizing. So it was living out. It was living out values in a way that made sense to me in a cause that I really believed in. So I aligned both the values of the organisation with the cause of the organization. So I think some sometimes you can get caught in, like people get caught in organizations where they might believe in the cause, but actually the way the organization works just doesn't, isn't right for them. And sometimes you can get, you know, you love a place that you work, but actually what it's trying to achieve, you're less, you know, it's not really your kind of thing. And I think what Worth did for me was it married those two things like together so I got to drive you know when you're the leader of it you get to drive some of that culture but it expressed something deep about who I was and how I saw the world and I think that's probably true for a lot of charities big and small is that they become expressions of how people especially smaller charity I think where they've got founders involved people found charities because they believe in something and they believe that something is not right with the world which is why we don't sell shoes because selling shoes doesn't change the kind of injustices of the world the socioeconomic conditions that people live in you know it doesn't change any of that whereas whereas this like that has the potential to be something that is transformative and so you know i felt it was really 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 wrong that it depended there was a postcode lottery about where you grew up to the opportunities you had to live a meaningful hopeful decent life and I thought that, and, and we get so shaped by that in our youth that often we live that story out about not being able to do very much in the world or the world is like this or the world's against me or whatever, like from when we're young. And so I was like, actually, if you can grab hold of young people and, and enable them to understand the environment that they're in, but that there's hope and possibility for them and that they have something to offer to the world, then I was like, that could be transformative for individuals, but also for communities. And that vision kind of drove my day to day. So I think one of the things about being a, a charity leader, in one sense, in any business, I guess, or any organisation is, you know, sometimes the day to day is really hard. You know, you've got to make budgets work. You've got to raise some money. You've got personnel like issues to deal with. You've got partnerships that you've got to work through. You've got complexity. You've got the people that you're working with can you know, can sometimes be hard to work with, you know, all of those kinds of things are in your day to day. And I think it's very hard to keep hold of that for a long haul. If you haven't got a vision in front of you that says tomorrow can be better than today. Like I'm doing something, not because I'm the Messiah, but I'm doing something that is potentially transformative to at least some people's lives. And you know what, that's that the trade off then of the stress of it, like the trade-off is okay because you're working towards something that you think is meaningful that expresses something of yourself. It's interesting you were talking about personality and the way it shapes the organisation. I was talking um, in a group today and somebody was was echoing, I think it was, was it Prince William, who had said there are too many charities in the UK. And he was saying, you know, I totally agree with him. 
And now he had a decent point, which was about how if you have five charities, say five charities that all aim to end homelessness, those five charities all get or pull from a limited source of funding from donations. You know, there's only so much money that people can give. And ultimately, they've all got similar costs. They've all got admin costs, staffing costs, and so on and so forth. And actually, those individual but repeated costs are a drain on the cause. And so therefore, you know, you definitely could say there shouldn't be allowed or there shouldn't be so many, you know, charities about these. But I think the personality point is really difficult because it's a bit like branding, actually, in that there will be one charity in that mix, even in those five, that might be really passionate about providing support to um, homeless people in this way, in this particular way, like the big issue, essentially giving them, you know, a leg up and an out, um, or the, um, it's terrible, I can't, oh, change please, that, um, have you heard about those? The, the um, it was a, essentially a social enterprise that trained homeless people as baristas, and then, you know, they could sell coffee, and it just recently took over the AMT uh, brand. So now it has all of these outlets through the, the AMT brand that it can, that can use to bring forward its cause, which is fantastic. But they'll have one way to do it, whereas Shelter do it completely differently. And where where do you draw the line? And I wonder whether when you were going through with Worth Unlimited, um, you had any moments because of that very strong personality uh, flow that comes into an organisation, you had any moments where that was a problem or where there was issues with that that yeah that's a good uh, that is that's a really good like that's a really good question i think i think like one of the dangers is that we hold charities up as the kind of panacea of all good (laughs) and you know my take is that and actually part of what i'm doing now post worth is is trying to work in this space of saying the danger of what we've created is almost like a poverty industry do you know what I mean? Where actually what we're doing is self-perpetuating like a process and almost we need people to stay reliant on us to justify our organisation's existence. The space I'm in now is what's called asset-based community development, which is actually making communities at the centre of things, not organisations. And saying that the danger is that charities can be quite paternalistic in the way that they approach things. So I, I, your example at homelessness is a really good one, actually, because I, I know that although that's not my field, I know the homelessness sector in Birmingham in particular, which is where I live, like very well. And there is definitely a difference between organisations that have a very clear intention of not existing, of going, we want to do ourselves out of a job here. This is not right. And we'll campaign for as well as working with people, they will chant, they will they will campaign for changes to the system and society because they say we shouldn't exist so a friend of mine works for crisis and their whole mantra is they had a wake at their 50th anniversary because they said we shouldn't be here we were set up to end homelessness their strategy is written to say in 50 years time our strategy is to not be here because we won't have homelessness there are some charities i won't name these ones but there are some where what they're kind of like homelessness will always be here so we're always going to be needed and that doesn't mean their work is bad but I think it's a different mentality I was always clear that worth was set up because something wasn't right because we weren't creating the 
environments in which young people from certain communities could flourish, do well, grow up well, find their meaning and purpose in life and begin to live that out, that there was something really not right like it there. But I'd rather we didn't like exist. I mean, food banks is the absolute classic. You know, I've heard people in food banks, some of whom are, I, I don't think they wish that they existed, but do you know what I mean? They haven't really got a focus on the, we shouldn't be here, this is all really wrong. They, they focused on the we're doing good in it. You know, that's a good thing and makes us feel good. But I know other people involved in food banks who are furious that they have to exist. Like, who are absolutely, like, this has to stop. This has to end. And if we can find some ways to end it. So that's the danger of the charity sector, I think. I think there are some things. And so I definitely tried to stay on the line of, like, how do, how do we do something here that changes things? That means that we're potentially not needed. I'm not sure we succeeded very well in that, partly because of our size. So actually, one of the other things, I know that's something you wanted to talk about, is I think there is a difference sometimes in the mentality of a small, local, rooted charity and some of the bigger charities. And I want to be careful about not making too much of a binary, low, small and local good, big national bad, I mean, I ran a middling-sized one, which is interesting in itself. But I, I, I do think that one of the big issues about why, why, why well, the issue that small charities have, which potentially relates to what Prince William was talking about, is that lots of the big charities hoover up the kind of resources, we're the answer, etc. But actually, aren't very connected. They do some good stuff, but they're actually not very connected to grassroots charities. One of the things I, I'm, I'm involved in a project at the moment. I'm doing some consultancy work, working alongside a local, very local charity in one particular community in Birmingham. But we've built a partnership with a big national mental health charity, and what they're doing is putting resources. So they've got managed to get resources, but they're putting it into this small local charity because they're going. You're on the ground you're connecting with people, you're helping community work here, we want to come alongside you and support and enable and help resource what you are doing. And we want to see if we can learn from that so that we could do that in other places. Now, I think that's a brilliant example of how you can move from this competitive element, you know, we're competing for scarce resources, which is part of your question, to an abundant model. Like, right, okay, so we've all got gifts, we've all got something to give here, but how can we work together to solve some of these issues? Because actually the people who found charities often do it because they want to solve something. I think when we talked some time ago, I mentioned the book, uh, The Gift by Lewis Hyde, yep. which is very much in that vein of the difference between a kind of transactional relationship where you know you and actually I think this exists in charities as well and we see it um, unfortunately you see it quite a lot is that you know here's a here's a even a petition here's a petition sign this petition then you've done your job I've signed that petition or I've given that five pounds and I've made a transaction which means that I can then keep that thing a little bit further away from me and it can just go on and you know run itself as opposed to the the real giving um, of actually giving something that kind of hurts you or, or takes something of you so you can't help but become attached to it so you've got that difference between transactional and relationship building and I think really the the, the, the discussion that then came about in terms of um, how many charities there are and whether there should be multiple charities there are too many charities for me makes most sense in the fact that it's not about the charities 
so much as it's about two ends of the conversation. On the one end, the fact that, um, and food banks is a great example, why are there food banks in what is the fifth you know, richest yeah. nation or wherever we sit? You know, it's, it, is, it is stupefying that that exists and that the goal of government should be to end food banks, let alone the goal of like the trust of trust. Yeah. You know, shouldn't the goal of government be to, I mean, people talk about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, if, if the government just focuses on the bottom rung of that ladder to try and end those kind of, you know, then literally you don't need that charity. So that charity necessarily shouldn't exist. Yeah, you could get rid of it. But then you're limiting the number of charities that are needed by not having so many causes that need addressing, like you say, wrong things that need putting right. But then on the other side, it is like you've talked about this collaboration, this working together, the I hate the expression, the working smarter, not harder. So you're actually joining forces. And I think for me, what triggered a lot of my interest in whether there was a better way to support charities, especially small charities, was last year hearing about Macmillan and Boots coming together for this partnership where Macmillan were going to um, put members of their staff, cancer support specialists, talking about cancer care and cancer treatment into Boots branches. And obviously it's kind of that positive selfishness. Again, we talked about like, it's, mm. it's brilliant for Boots because anything that gets their name out, you know, it's great PR, it's great branding and they get people into the, into the stores so people spend money. But for Macmillan, it's great because they've got more surface area. They've got more contact with the people that they want to help. And it's awareness wise, it's absolutely fantastic. And I started to wonder whether that's a model that you could actually do with, you know, many, many people. Why couldn't, a local charity find a local independent shop that cross paths with it. And yes, the surface area and the kind of benefits aren't as huge, but scaling wise, you know, comparatively wise, there's still is the same kind of path, the same kind of process. And um, I, to be honest, I don't really know where I'm, I'm going with this other than just to say, it feels like it's very easy to point at charities and say, um, there are too many of you. And that is not to address why there's too many of them, just as it's very easy to support a charity uh, and, and donate to a charity and then feel like you've, you've solved that problem. Whereas yeah. being in a charity, you see that problem every day. And yeah. how, I guess the first question in that, in that respect is, how did you find a way of talking about what was so passionate to you that you saw it and thought about it all the time how did you reach out and talk to people who either didn't want to think about it all the time or who only wanted to think about it for a period of time and then help in that period of time? Yeah, it was it, like that. And that is one of the biggest, all that you've described is some of the biggest challenges, like I think. Um, uh, so there's, I think there's two ways potentially. So I, I think the way to get people on board with something is to make, to, 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 to communicate in a way that gets us to go, why, why should we care about this? Like, what is it that we should care about? Now, some of that can be a moral, visionary, like appeal to something. You know, it's, isn't it really wrong that, you know, if you live in this postcode, your life chances are like this. And if you live in that postcode that's two miles down the road, your life chances are like this, you know you're you know 50 times more likely to go to university you live if you live here than if you live there type approach to things do you know what i mean like you're likely to die 10 years younger if you live here than if you live there that's not right we need should we do something about that but i think you can also like appeal to people's 
where people need a more pragmatic kind of approach you know I mean, to things. So one of my things was employers all the time would complain about how young people came to them. Like they would not about the skills necessarily, but the aptitudes and attitudes that young people like would come with. And so you're kind of going, well, hang on a minute. If we can do something that enables young people to learn some of those personal social skills, you know, the things that they need in the workplace. And if we can do that when they're 13, like surely that and we set them on the track for that. Surely that's better. So I think you can. My, my field was quite difficult because like people's. I think that people's perception of young people is often, you know, that they are uh, uh, violent, addicted or victims. Like that's the narrative that we, do you know what I mean, that we have with young people, which is not, absolutely not true of the vast majority of young people. But so either then they're naughty in some way, like, you know, they, they're knifing each other, they're taking drugs, they're drinking, da, 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 all that kind of stuff, or they're victims. They are tra being trafficked or they're being this, that or the other. And so to get over that, actually, the vast majority of young people live lives where actually if they had positive things to do, positive relationships with adults and built positive relationships with peers and did activity that enabled them to gain some of those kind of personal, social, teamwork, communication type skills, and feel more self-confident in themselves that the world would be a better place if every young person could discover why they were on the planet, which is a bit of my story. You know, I went to university kind of going, can I discover the reason that I'm on the planet? You know, that the world would be different. But because people's perception of young people, it's not like, the, you know, starving children in Africa. It's not like homeless people on the, even people, homelessness people have some kind of different views about, whether it's their fault or not their fault or whatever, you know, cancer is another one that, you know, you can explain can explain a cancer charity really easily, like because most people know somebody who's suffered. And that's absolutely right. All of that is right. But when you're in a field where society doesn't really like the people that you're working with very much, it's a lot harder to convince people. And that was one of the challenges I had actually was, why should I give a check? Why should I give to you so that you can do some great activities to reward kids who are being naughty? Like, why? Why should I do that? Now, that's all very stereotypical, but that is one of the challenges I think of that sector. There is that challenge, though, isn't there? That um, on the one hand, especially when we're passionate about something, what you really want to do is shout from the the hilltops and be like, yeah. um, you know, you sh you should be passionate about this because I am yeah. because it matters because and. Um, I, you know, you see it in internal comms in a business, you see it in marketing, and I think you do see it in charities, is that unfortunately, the most important thing is not what you want to say, not what you're trying to get people to think, but what people think already and what they want to hear. And and the it's like um, if you say uh, if you say something in a, in a slang or in a kind of a colloquial way that you assume everybody understands, and then somebody doesn't understand it, it's not their fault. If yeah. you need them to understand, <laughs> it's not their fault that they didn't understand the way that you put it. If you want to communicate with them, it's 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 really your job, isn't it, to 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 think like them and to speak like them. And I mean, yeah, but I, yeah, I think the other thing that you can do though is I think like one of the things that sometimes work for people is taking people back to being a teenager and go, can you remember what it was like? And 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 people start going, oh my goodness me, yeah yeah yeah. Do you know what actually? It was really hard. Like, 
and I, you know, I got through it okay, but it was difficult. People have got all kinds. If you talk to people, if you said to people, tell me about your teenage years, people will have a story. People will have something they want to say. And then you can go, and what would have made a difference like to that story? Or, or what did make a difference to that story? And often what you find is a, like a concerned adult often or a really good peer was what got them through sometimes quite difficult times and you go well actually that's all we're trying to do we're trying to help young people build french good friendships with each other so they can be there for each other and we're trying to be positive adults in their lives and help this community be good adults in the, in these young people's lives so that we can help them through this period that we all know is a difficult period that we call adolescence so do you see what I mean? Like, what, but it just is a few extra steps, I think, for that field. And there's probably some other fields we could name that maybe are like that than it is for some stray dogs or, do you know what I mean? Like something else where people can do a more immediate link or leap. And obviously one of the problems is like how, like how quickly you can get the, the hook like for people. So what gets people sitting forward in their chair and going, right, hang on a minute, I want to hear more like stories would be the other one so telling stories of change and telling stories of you know you have to be careful about not setting these up as like hero stories or over melodramatic stories or or, or smoothing them out in some way that's always the trick like how do you tell a story authentically but in a way that hooks your audience but i you know i remember being at birmingham town hall because we were one of three charities that were being supported by a community gospel choir, actually, who did a concert every year for like different charities. And we were one of them. And I just told the story of one young person who was a bit lost when we met him when he was 16. And we went on a journey with him and we helped him discover what he's passionate about, which actually he's quite an entrepreneurial kind of person. He's quite into fitness and stuff. And we built a bike social enterprise kind of around his passion and now he's mentoring young people who are where he was i got a huge round of applause for it because people go ah oh, wow yes absolutely if if we could get our teenagers going on that kind of journey and creating a virtuous circle where they're now giving back wouldn't that be great so i think some of the art is the storytelling actually because yes people want to know about your charity and what it does and where their money goes and how they might support it and stuff but the first thing that hooks people i think that gets them sitting forward in their chair is 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 a story like is something that actually has changed the challenge we've got which is obviously part of the reason for this podcast is for smaller charities getting that out and getting that story in a significant scaled way that's amplified that's genuine like that's one of the hardest hardest tricks to pull and i don't claim that i pulled it particularly well when i was i was doing the job that i was doing i was thinking um, when you were talking about uh, stories and um that they're so effective and obviously you know it's not it's no surprise to anybody even even somebody who might be in uh, might not necessarily be au fait with marketing or anything like that the idea of stories has been talked about so much recently um, and I guess Simon Sinek kind of hooks into that as well. And this idea of, of narratives and journeys, you know, we use this language. What I find really funny is um, a guy called Louis Cronier, who runs a brilliant marketing course that I did last year. And he has this um, analogy that he uses where it's like everybody tells you, you know, in marketing, you've got to stand out. We all want to stand out. Mm -hmm. But what often happens is that we have this idea of what stand out um, 
the process of standout, we have this idea or we have this longing for it. And everybody says, you've got to, which is like saying you want to draw an owl. So Louis has this picture of, of an owl and he says, here's, here's how you draw an owl. Step one, draw some circles, because we all know from art class and stuff like that. You draw the circles, you draw the base. And then um, the, the step two, step two is draw the rest of the fucking owl. And it's that bit in the middle that nobody ever really concentrates on. And I'm fascinated with the stories angle of this as well, because there's so much telling you, you should do stories, do stories, do stories. And it's again like that step one, do stories, right? Find somebody with a story. Step two, tell that story. And there's no like, what, what story? How do you structure a story? What do you, yeah. and, and you said, you know, not making it into a hero story. So there's so many stages. But I actually think what you touched upon makes sense when you talked about the virtuous circle, because ultimately what you did was not just tell a story of your impact and not just tell a story that felt good, but you told a story that in itself was an analogy or a metaphor for your cause and for your organization. So it's actually you're telling the organization story through the story of someone else. And that you start to think, okay, find somebody with a, with a tale or with an experience that mirrors what you're trying to achieve or the reason that you're trying to achieve it. And you're one step closer to finding a story that might actually have some legs. I guess um, you were talking about how small charities can then go on and, and make these things work. One of the things I want to make a habit of in this podcast is yeah, we've, I've warned you. So, you know, <laughs> we know where we're coming from. This is, is that sense of saying, okay, so let's imagine um, you are starting a brand new charity. Um, yep. You're ignoring Prince William's advice that uh, there are too many charities <laughs> and, and you're starting a brand new charity. Uh, you have, of course, that's close to your heart. And we won't go into the um, intricate parts of like the legalities, governance and stuff like that. Say somebody else is dealing with that. And we'll also say that you're doing, uh, your cause is nothing cute. <laughs> so you can't just do pictures of dogs. I mean, I saw a Oh God, stats some years ago that 90 plus percent of all Twitter users were dog lovers, which is like basically that's that's why dog pictures do so well. You know, it's, it's like an easy thing. So you you can't go to that scale. You've got a cause that might not necessarily be so easy, so prevalent, and that also isn't so mainstream already that you just have to put a picture of it and it works. If you wanted to take that brand new charity and reach your first 1,000 donations, what would you what would be the first sort of steps that you would take to raise awareness to get some sort of awareness over your your organization what a good like it is a very good question uh although you preempted me with it i'm not sure how good an answer i've got like for this but so like i think inter like internally you've got to have your like ducks lined up like in a row so i think you know when i I go back, go back to the golden circle stuff with Simon Sinek. I've started quite a few charities actually, like or and organisations and social enterprise stuff over the time. In fact, I'm just starting a new community development trust actually in my own community. So I'm not claiming I've got this right, but I've done it a few times. Is like being very clear about why you are wanting to exist in the first place. Is there really nobody else? that's dealing with this is is really setting up an organization the right thing to do what is the purpose like of it and what is it seeking like to clearly achieve so that you're clear in your own mind I mean you have some documentation that goes with it but you also need to be able to talk about it 
Like you're very clear about why it exists and what it's for. So I think having a clear, like a clear vision, like for it, I think thinking about who else cares about this and why would they care? So that's a bit marketing-y, but, you know, where where is that, do you know what I mean, marketplace? Who's, who's going to not just buy into what you're doing, but want to share what you're doing like with other like with other people and i think potentially even road testing that with a few trusted people like what here's what i care about help me help me understand if i'm saying that clearly enough help me understand if that's like you know something that you can connect with even if you the person you're talking to doesn't buy into it like is it clear enough like i think like with do you know what i mean with all of that and i'm like say then understand like your market like who is going to who's going to be your first adopters like that's what you're talking about with the first thousand right is like who are your early adopters who's willing to give it a go who will go do you know what that sounds that sounds fantastic i love the idea of that let joey what do you need to get going like what do you like what do you need like i'm perfectly happy to give you you know five thousand pounds to help you get like off the do you know i mean off the ground and then I think working through like what those thousand people, if you get to those thousand people, is you know what is it they need from you? What's the buy-in? Do you know what I mean that they've? Do you know what I mean that they've they've got? Are they passionate about the cause? Do, like sometimes I, I'm a bit of a fan of um, I know it goes back to the shoe selling sometimes, but the, the, I'm a big fan of Dragon's Den. And what is interesting to me about Dragon's Den is they will often say, "I'm not completely convinced about your product, but I'm completely convinced by you." So I think one of the cells is if you're the founder of this or a few of you are, is you are part of the cell, actually. And actually, I used to tell my story of being a bit of a lonely kid, you know, parents who stayed together for the sake of the kids. Um, No, I wasn't naughty, but I struggled like emotionally and stuff like through, you know, and I didn't it wasn't actually till I got to university that I really began to kind of discover myself. And then, you know, faith and this, you know, meeting these young people and all that kind of stuff. It's because I go, look, I don't get everything right, but that's what drives me. Like, I hate people being excluded. I hate people being put to the margins. I hate it when people feel that they're inadequate. Like, and I hate the injustices that drive people to those places. Like, that's, you know, I could spend a whole podcast rabbit on about that. Do you know what I mean? I hate that. But I think for some people if then you've got some competence and some track record and all that kind of stuff behind you as well, either personally or in your team, people go, okay, I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing to be an early adopter of this. Like I'm, I'm willing to give this like a go and I'm willing to not just give it a go, might give you some money, but to support you like through that process. So, and then I think it's like, what, what channels kind of enable you to get, you know, to communicate like with people, like, what does that, look like i mean when i first started with worth it was the classic uh email newsletter like that was e-news like was the thing to do now i think i don't claim a wizard but i use you know twitter and instagram facebook as well but do you know what i mean those things now because lots more people get traction like through those and sometimes you need a bit of help to work that through but i think yeah i think that's so that's at least some thoughts you can ask me yeah, some, questions about it, but no, I think... some thoughts about how to get going 
I think that's great because ultimately at the base of what you're saying is that there is a process where you have to accept that you've chosen a purpose or a purpose has chosen you. You know, you can kind of have a yeah. calling. And if you divide yourself from that purpose, if you try and either put the purpose out there just as the purpose and try and get people to buy into that, or you just sort of take yourself out there and try and get people to buy into you, it's not going to work. It's the combination of those two things. And it is kind of, you know, it's quite neat, actually. I hadn't thought about this at the time, but it does take it round to if you start with why you're not just selling shoes. And that's where you go back to. And that's where you go back to. Even if you join, as you did, an organization that already existed or a big organization that's already been there or you're starting an organization, if you if you don't carry with you that passion, you're losing something, aren't you? You're missing something. And so actually yeah. to reach those first people is, like you say, to make them believe in you by showing that you're not just selling shoes. You're not just in it, you know, for the for the kind of nine to five. It's a cause. It's a real purpose. And you care Absolutely. about it. I think, you know, this goes back to the Simon Sinek thing. You know, people buy why you do it, mm. not what you do. And then people, will, you know, he uses, you know, he uses Apple as a particular example, which I know is a bit marmitey because some people love Apple and some people don't. But the example he uses is why do people buy a whole range of different products from Apple is because Apple was really good at marketing its why. Now, you can have a whole debate about the ethics of its why, so let's not do that. But I think he is, I think he is correct, like in his like in his analysis of it because what people do is they go it's the limbic brain stuff that he talks about is people go yes i believe that too i am that kind of person and that's the trick i think of getting people on board like with your cause the early adopters are the ones that instinctively go yes that is right that instinctively feels right to me now let's talk about the details now let's talk about you know, whether you can make this work and whether you've got a good board of trustees and whether you've got this and whether you've got that, the things that people sometimes want to know. But you only hook people with the kind of like, ah, yes, no, you're, I like you and you're onto something. You're, you're talking sense to me. Now tell me more. And going back to my Dragon's Den example, I think that's a lot of what happens if you watch Dragon's Den. You watch them sit forward in their chair. You can literally see the physical change in those dragons when someone's hooked them with a, oh, that's neat, that's interesting. Like now I'm up for a conversation. Now you can now you can talk to me. Like you I don't like have that. to have the stuff behind it to yeah. justify that. But you 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 have it's to get the, one, seat, the stick forward bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Absolutely. It's no good. Like you said earlier about the transactional thing. It's no good. I think approaching it from a transactional like point of view. You know, you give me a pound and this is what you get for it. Type approach to things. There might be some of that like later on in the process but i don't think that's what motivates people to to give or support like in the first place and, and it's interesting you're talking about giving and supporting you know not just the money not like we said not just the transactional but um that uh, it's affinity isn't it like you said alignment yep. as well earlier and i'm just looking over at my, my little bookshelf the back of seth godin's book this is marketing which says people like us do things like this and that's ultimately where we're kind of leaning to, isn't it? Especially with that first thousand is people, people who are like you, like you, <laughs> they think yeah. you're nice. They think they appreciate you and they appreciate what you're trying to do. And then um, I liked what you said, you're onto something. And it's that you're onto something and therefore you do this and I can buy into that 
and now prove to me that you know the systematic way to deliver on your promise. I mean, again, yeah. you know, we come back to brand in a way, but yeah. yeah and, and that's where you'll get some of your later adopters is they need that, that, that other bit of the process to do that. So I think that is part, I, I really am a fan of that, of that curve, like an understanding who you're talking to. You might start talking to somebody who won't support you for a couple of years because they want to see that actually something real is happening, something tangible is happening. Whereas you get other people who are willing like to give, you know, that sounds good. I like that. You've seemed like you've got a bit of a plan. I'm willing to give that a go. And then I might give or support more later, but you've got to understand that there's other people who need to see that more pragmatic. Is this working? I'm only buying into this if other people are buying into it. Like you have to understand, I think those different components of people yeah nobody well not many people want to be first do they they don't want to be first into the breach <laughs> i mean it's like well, I, th- I, th- I think that's right not many people do but there are people who do and yeah. they're the people like, like why do why do you get new year sale like new year's day and people are queuing in the early hours of the morning outside wherever right what why they can buy it they can buy exactly the same item four days later when the queues have gone right? They absolutely can. Why? Is because they want to walk out the shop going, I have just bought the latest, whatever it might be. I've got the latest iPhone. I've got this. I've got that. Because they want to be first. And some people, I think that is true, is they want to be first. So it may not be the majority, but those early adopters and then early majority, late majority, late adopters, like that curve, I think really works. And trying to understand, some people are I think even I would go as far as this. Some people don't want to be the late adopters. If they're not in at the beginning, they don't want to be in. Like they want to be the one that said, Do you know what? I spotted that before everybody else. Like I, I, I invested in Tim before everybody else because I knew he was onto something. Do you know what I mean? Some people, that's their that's their mindset. Do you know what I mean? That's what they want do you know what I mean? yeah, to do. Definitely. So you're right, it might not be the majority of people, but there are people who want to be first. Well, I certainly think um with this being the first podcast in this thing that I want to do it's that same kind of process I mean I reached out to you because I knew that you would be up for a conversation and that it didn't matter that I hadn't done 10 of them previously that you didn't need a shape for it you'd just be like yeah it sounds like a good idea let's run with it but also I guess because we built that trust from a conversation you know earlier and we had connections anyway mutual connections but it's that it's that finding one of the things to kind of look at my personal kind of aspect is I spent two years trying over a pandemic at least so you know there were challenges as well but I spent two years trying to get something to work and never got anywhere and I realized you know I never got anywhere because the audience I was trying to connect with I didn't understand I didn't empathize with I hadn't been in their shoes I didn't um you know think like them but more and more it became clear that not only did I not think like them I didn't want to and I didn't want to be in their world. And I didn't actually really want to work with them all the time. And then ultimately, the thing that really made it was actually, I don't know any of them. I don't have any existing connections. I haven't spent 10 or 15 years working alongside people like that. When I started looking into working with nonprofits and people in charities and reaching out to people like you, within two or three weeks, I had already made more connections and talked to more people than I had in the two years previously in that other audience. And that was when I was like, hang on, you you can't ignore that. 
you can't ignore the natural connections that you already have that from 15 or 20 years of work that you just naturally have or the family connections or that, you know, I mean, we know each other really through my mum, you know, through that connection. So there's those kind of things that come out. And yet at the same time, you can't ignore it because that's a value of itself. And I'm now in a situation where I can go, I need to speak to, I want to speak to 10 people for this podcast. And I, I have a list of 10 people. 10 people I've already spoken to who I know I would speak to. Whereas the other podcasts I do, I couldn't get that list. I'd have to go out and find those people because they're a different audience. And yeah. that is it as well, is, is the people that are like you, you are probably already quite a lot connected to. And so using your initial connections to get to that next yeah. thousand, you know, and then like you say, it's this curve, it's this gap that you leap over, isn't it? Where the yeah. thousand then get you to the 10,000 and the 10, but you can't get yeah. the, the 100,000 without doing all those steps in between. And you've got to honour those steps. Yeah, and I I think there is absolute strength in what you're talking about. I think that's absolutely true. There is a limit to that, I think. And the limit is, and I think this is where, like some of this conversation about um, how does a a branding agency, a marketing agency, how how does someone with your skill set, for example, help someone like in the position that I was in? Because I think... What I found as well, though, was I, A, my networks were, like, there's a bit of echo chambery like stuff. So you re- you know people who are like you, who know people who are like you. If you, you know, if you, uh, like, looked at my Facebook, for example, there's a lot of echo chambers, like, in it. Because it's, you know, the people I'm friends with, the people I'm connected to, like, are people who often see the world in quite a similar way to the way I see the world. So what you end up with, this is what I found running a, small to medium-sized charity was that you like what's really frustrating is when you get to the end of your reach and you don't know what to do next like you don't know how to go from one thing to another because actually the people you're connected to are all connected in some way to each other and so they don't have that reach like either and that's the bit I found I never succeeded in and that's why when we first started talking I was really interested in what you were talking about because I immediately could empathize with what you were trying to help smaller charities do which is you don't have the national profile so people aren't coming to you so you have to generate a market how do you generate a market beyond your own connections and their connections if you really want to scale like you said go from a thousand to ten thousand to a hundred thousand I never managed that and one of the reasons was I didn't know how to do it and I was really frustrated because I felt like I had a story to tell I felt I was running a really good organization I felt there were things about it that were like precious and unique and you know I suppose every charity leader would say that but I never found the means to kind of reach beyond a certain point and that is very frustrating when you're a leader of a smaller charity i can see that i can see that and that's really valuable insight as well because that's the other thing of doing a podcast like this and my other one is just you can't then know i couldn't know that experience that you have without us having these you know one hour two hour cumulative conversations we've had so um so thank you i really appreciate it Really appreciate your time. That's been absolutely fantastic. And the perfect way, I feel, to kick this off and um, to talk about us no longer <laughs> being, I don't know, you know, it's, I'm trying to find a pithy way to, to sum it up maybe, and maybe I shouldn't be, but it's that idea of just saying it's, it's okay to sell shoes, but it's okay to not want to <laughs> at the same time. And this is how 
you know, hopefully we can help people to, to look forward and say, actually, this is how you can go forward without having to just sell shoes, without having to just sell your cause, but to actually yeah, keep that purpose as part of what you're doing. So thanks very much, Tim. I really appreciate it. It's great. I've loved our conversation. It's been great. Thanks a lot. Thank you.